the harshest of operating conditions. Large-scale investment, planning, and commitment places the offshore sector in a league all on its own, where the stories of people aren't found anywhere else. From safety to operations to new technology, we look to break down this often mystified industry and shed light into the unknown. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast with your host, Andy Lash. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast, where we are making waves in the oil and gas industry. We've got a very interesting guest today. We've got Neil Manning from 3D at Depth here to talk about underwater surveys and inspections and everything that they're doing in the industry. Neil, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, thanks, Andy. Yeah, thanks for making the time. I know this is short notice, and I really appreciate it. No problem. Where are you at today? We're doing these remotely, of course. I'm also remote. I'm working from my home office here in Houston, Texas. Now, you live in Houston now, but I can tell you, you're not from Houston. You don't have that Texas draw. Yeah, 12 years after being here, I'm still trying to work on the accent. successfully so i'm originally from the united kingdom in the southern part of the uk city called norwich wonderful how long have you been 12 years you've been in the states just coming up on 12 years now yeah have you always lived in texas or have you have you lived in other parts of the u.s just colorado just outside of boulder where we have the office in longmont we were there for three years oh okay that's interesting that you'd have, it was an office for 3D at depth. Yeah, so Houston's great for oil and gas and Colorado's great for optical and LIDAR laser specialists. And the company's oh. founder is also based there. Oh, okay. Well, I lived in Colorado for a while as well. I've I've moved around the country quite a bit. I loved Colorado. I, I lived in Texas as well. Very different there. Do you miss the UK at all? I miss some of the the nuances in the cultures and some of the directness some people would call that direct directness toilet humor but in general we like the opportunities that the u.s gives to us so we're we're quite happy here oh no wonderful wonderful well that's cool i'm glad you're enjoying enjoying it here i mean 12 years you've seen a lot of it i'm sure so that's good but how about just a little bit more on your you know maybe your career path and and how you've ended up where you are with 3d at depth sure yeah so i Started life, left college with an electronics degree. I then moved into uh, oil and gas and survey pretty much straight away for a survey company that was called Rakel Survey, no longer in existence, but was really probably one of the staple early stage global survey contractors. Had varying positions with those. After they were sold off about a year later, I joined a seismic equipment manufacturing company, which was mainly focused on marine seismic. And I worked into a general manager position with them. They were sold off. Then I moved to another company called CDL, which we then sold off five or six years later. And then I became part of 3D at depth at very early stage, kind of from when it was on the whiteboard and not possible for it to go in the water up until where we are today with the company. Awesome. That's a very interesting path. I mean, you've been working in the industry for quite a long time then. Seismic, is, is seismic maybe some of the other survey methods that that were, were in use before, you know, certainly the technology that you guys have developed now, but kind of how has surveying been used in the offshore industry over the years? I mean, surveying has been used from the very early starts, which would be positional. It used to be used with radios or line of sight, taking sunshots through to now where we have GPS on our phones, on our watch and pretty much everywhere else. And is very accessible. The seismic side of survey is 
for me and for everybody else is below the surface. So subterranean, so it's rock and sand and pressure layers. The surveying that 3D at depth does with other acoustic or imaging devices is above the surface. So that's things that you can see. The challenges with the oil and gas industry is a lot of it's in water. And once you deploy and you go through into the water column, you lose natural light. So spatially things become a challenge. So surveying has assisted over the years in taking those measurements where you have no spatial recognition from using just a camera on its own. So you're basically just ending up with those flat images, right? If you don't have the the light to capture that, the variance. With light or with 3D sonar, you can achieve three-dimensional depth perception measurements. And in the last nine to 10 years, that's become multi-beam sonar. And then optical methods have really developed to give that 3D depth of something that you're measuring and to help you visualize it correctly. Surveying is really the measurement of, you know, multiple structures in relation to each other, or just where are we in the water where there are no structures and you need to pull a reference and put that reference on the Earth's surface. Okay, yeah. I'm used to on-land surveys, of course. I mean, I think anybody's familiar with that. And and you had kind of made the point before the show when we were talking that, you know, surveys is only one part of it. I mean, a lot of this turns into true inspections, right? Like I know just looking at your website, there's a lot of of inspection of maybe cables that have been laid and you want to make sure that they're in the right spot or or you know, you want to make sure that the equipment that you've placed down there on the on the floor hasn't moved or you know, so I mean that's a big part of this as well, right? Yeah, so we specifically with the subsea lidar products that you know, there was a gap identified in the market. And that gap was rather than just taking a survey and a measurement from one point to another point in space, you'd be able to visualize that correctly. And that that visualization was at the resolution and density of of points in, in a point cloud, just like, as you'd mentioned, a surface scan where you can inspect. And that inspection can be for leaks. It can be for small cracks or dents or deformation in structures or subsidence, an angular measurement. So there are, there are many value adds now in survey where survey used to be just a measurement and survey is now considered to be survey and inspection. And then now the technical challenge is to develop technology that does both things at the same time rather than two completely independent com- campaigns. So how does it look like? I mean, what's the actual process look like equipment-wise and just in general? When you're out going out doing these inspections and surveys, I mean... Are you pulling something behind a vessel? Is it, are you using ROVs? Are you, you know, is it divers? I mean, what does that actually look like? So it's still pretty much all of the above. Okay. We have a a spread that is deployed by divers, which would be one of our more basic methods of deploying into the water. A lot of offshore operators, that being the oil and gas companies, have a preference not to use divers. So that drove the need for remotely operated vehicles. And then there's a whole raw for those in sizes and capability that they can achieve from the depths they can dive. Our equipment fits on the majority of them. After you have the remotely operated vehicles, which are tethered, you then move into autonomous vehicles. Again, the technology can be mounted on autonomous vehicles where you have supervised and unsupervised which means the unsupervised is you plan in a pre-planned mission and you hit go and the vehicle will swim off and run that route and ideally it comes back. 
if it doesn't it's gone and um, they're quite hard to find sometimes they turn up on a beach in another continent and if you put a number on there which is if found please call this number you may get it back <laughs> supervised autonomy is where you stay on a vessel and you can track and follow it so the interesting thing with the developments of supervised autonomy is vessels you know no different to like what tidewater has a, a platform supply vessel which the acronym is psv so i'll try to stay away from those as much as possible <laughs> you could mount a through hole communications device or an over the side device on one of those vessels that's near a rig anyway doing something else and talk to a supervised autonomous vehicle subsea collect data and give it new instructions nice i had another guest on just about rovs and he didn't mention <laughs> the ROVs, you know, basically flying off on their own like you did. I feel like, do you have a good story there? Have you have you had, unfortunately, lost one of those before? I've never lost one. So the ROVs are generally tethered. So they have a cable from the, the deployment vessel to the vehicle. The, the AUVs, which is an autonomous underwater vehicle, they are generally untethered and require an acoustic modem or another communication device, which may be optical to communicate they are of a higher risk of of not coming back although you know that's getting less and less than it was when they started to try and do these in the 80s quite commonly a vehicle would go and and continue to go in one direction and not run a, a planned routine group yeah that'd be that'd be disappointing not only is that probably a costly loss but all that time and whatever data that device did generate and capture is, is lost as well so absolutely glad. <laughs> Glad that's not not common. With 3D at depth, are you guys developing both the hardware and the software that you use, or you know, or is it just one or the other? No, it's it's all of the above. So the business model that we adopted was we would develop our own technology and then patent that technology. And some of the applications around that that were successful, we were very early to the market in optical measurement. So we celebrate four patents with number five coming any day, and oh. then. For the software, we decided to take the business model where the, the data that we collect, which is a point cloud, we would move it into industry standards as quickly as possible. And the industry standard we selected was terrestrial laser scanning, where you know that's a multi-billion dollar industry. And the reason was we wanted customers to have the right to access the data and process and manipulate the data themselves. When you develop new technology, you really need to gain trust in what you're producing as a measurement for a customer and one of the best ways for them to trust the technology is for them to have the ability to take those measurements on their own so we developed the software to get us to the point of it's now industry standard point cloud as a data format and customers can look at it on their own neil is the technology that you guys are using i understand 3d at depth is focused on underwater surveys and inspections but it, but is any of the ta technology applicable to on land or, or above water so the core technology that we developed is purely for use in water and we're, we're actually doing something really cool with it we're taking you know a laser beam through what is effectively a one atmosphere environment inside a, a metal housing subsea pushing it through a, a lens and then through the medium of water and back again to achieve that, we apply index of refraction, which is it's kind of been around since the 1800s. People decided that light bends in water. So because of that, the answer is basically no. And that's one of those patents I mentioned earlier that, that we had released was the, the ability to correct for index of refraction. You can, though, when you take 
conventional terrestrial land survey from I'll say off the shelf because there's more than one manufacturer that manufactures laser scanners. You can take that data set and register that to our subsea measurements. And as a business, we do offer that to our customers. The value of that is they have a, a daylight photogrammetric finished model of their structure sitting on the seabed, you know, with the accuracies of around three millimeters between the two measurements, one in the surface and one at full ocean depth, which is pretty cool. Yeah, three millimeters of accuracies. That's incredible. I mean, and you're you're taking those measurements from presumably a very far distance away. I mean, if you're you're taking those from the surface down? No, we're we're on one of the remotely operated vehicles, the ROVs or an AUV, and that's taken us down to around, you know, 25, 30 meters away from a structure. And then the other reason why we wouldn't use the technology in air is we significantly more laser power in the water to penetrate light into those distances of just 20 to 30 meters. I think the best we've achieved is 47 in open water. And if you were to do that in air, you would be pushing a laser light over five miles. Oh, wow. And at that power rating, they're not eye safe. So we have several safety interlocks to ensure that the the laser doesn't come up to those power settings in air. Nice. Okay. You mentioned those patents. I'm not sure if this applies, but as you were talking through it, I know that my iPhone can actually do like, I would think it's optical measurement. I mean, it takes the camera and it finds a reference point and you kind of scan it across the other side. And I measured my desk the other day to find some pictures to put on it. And any of those things tied together? So when you get to the data manipulation, certainly, where I think what you would say is the 3D depth subsea laser is, is the very accurate tape measure. That's the reference. And then the iPhone is going to give you a desk measurement to a certain tolerance, but it's not going to be as repeatable or as tight as, as a laser measurement. Regardless of the range we are from a structure, mm-hmm. the desk would always be the same size if it was subsea. With a camera-based system subsea, depending on the angle you're looking at it, the ambient light that surrounds it and the shadows that could be created from that, it would always come out a slightly different measurement and the distance you're from it. And that's part of that index of refraction computation that we run that helps with that. So. Is there disadvantages maybe to your system where you could basically have light pollution if if what you're measuring isn't deep enough? Like if it's too close to the surface and there's too much ambient light, does that affect the measurements? No. So every system has disadvantages. So I think we'll just jump straight in with that. Light pollution for okay. us is is not a problem. Our disadvantage is with any optical system in water is turbidity. So if you're in poor water conditions. You know, if you can't see it, you can't measure it. LiDAR will go further than a camera-based system. So a camera-based system like your iPhone or photogrammetric is is the term to use, they're subject to light pollution from backscatter from, you know, if you're close to the surface, the sunlight penetrating the water. If you're deep and you have high particulates in the water and ambient light that you're pushing in yourself from one of those remotely operated vehicles, they'll run LED lights just like a car at night needs lights to steer and drive. Mm -hmm. That backscatter from either targets that you're trying to measure because they're nice and yellow and brightly painted or plankton and high marine life in the water, that would impact that backscatter. So all optical systems, actually and acoustic, will suffer from high turbid water conditions. Optical having the value of extreme high resolution, but the disadvantage is 
the conditions need to be more idyllic. So I would imagine there's there's times when you you go out to to take these measurements and these inspections and and you just can't you kind of have to call off the trip sometimes. So we've done probably close to 500 projects now if not more and we normally ask the customer if they have any legacy camera footage from when they've had a, a conventional inspection vehicle there. Mm-hmm. If we can utilize that just by looking at it on a camera recording or some still photography from Subsea, we can give an estimate of what we think our range will be. So certainly in the early days, 2013, 2014, when we were starting to do projects, we were waiting on you know sediment to settle down uh, to get to the right conditions to record. But the more projects we've done, the more rehearsed we've got. We very rarely go on a project now where we then struggle to achieve the result required. We've had a few projects where we've said we don't think it's suitable for the task. Okay, that makes sense. I was just thinking more like how much weather might might play into it, you know, just with currents changing and maybe those turbidity levels changing kind of unknown until you get there. But But that makes a lot of sense for sure. We don't do that much in terms of shallow water projects. But in a shallow water project, you would definitely see that as a problem if you had a weather front come through and the, the sediment is stirred up through wave action. Okay, yeah, that makes more sense. Are there surveys or, or more so, are there inspections and measurements that customers are coming to you today that technology just isn't available for? So the only application I can think where that is is really relevant for us is where we get asked a question, can you go inside the well? And they want us to go inside the drilling pipe and inspect. We have a physical restriction right now on the the outer diameter of our pressure housings for our optical head and our electronics are a certain size. Other than that, we seem to be meeting customer demands for anything outside of a well. Of course, if we're in very poor conditions, the technology doesn't exist yet where you can use optical methods to penetrate very turbid conditions at the range and performance of acoustics but then you know with optical it's not always going to be the right answer for the right tool there's many ways of skinning a cat sorry to the cat lovers that are listening in (laughs) my daughter's probably one of them mine too (laughs) yeah so you know with that in mind then there's other tools in the toolbox for for poor water conditions that you'd have to use that we couldn't satisfy today in fact no optical manufacturer is is at that level yet sure yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So it's just, you know, it's just super interesting to me. I mean, it's just even looking at the pictures online and just kind of seeing some of the stuff that you guys do, it's so far down under the water. It's just such a mystery down there. You guys get to bring a lot of that up to the surface, you know. What kind of industries are you guys working with besides just oil and gas? Yeah, so I mean, oil and gas is certainly our biggest market. And, you know, thanks to those guys for being receptive. Um, we're generally in the energy sector, I would say. So nuclear is another good market vertical for us and renewable and offshore wind. We've done the occasional river and dam survey. And then outside of that, I wouldn't say that they're market verticals because they generally don't get paid. But archaeological is, is always something that we like to do. It's just we don't we tend to not consider that a market vertical just based on there's no money in it. Sure. What does a new customer for 3D at depth, where do they need to start? What do they need to be thinking about for their project when they come talk to you guys? Yeah, great question. So f- first of all, do they have a need? We, t- we tend to find some new customers just want to use it because they're going to get a cool data set. <laughs> yeah. And the best thing is to be as open with us as possible because it 
on what you're trying to achieve. That enables us to really tailor what we're going to do. And there are so many things you can get back other than just a measurement. Is it leaking? Is it vibrating and moving? So there's a whole integrity question that the technology answers. So if a new customer comes to us, we'd like to know the water depth so we can tailor that, the vehicle, the method they're going to deploy. And then it's really, if you have any visual data of the water conditions, if it's a shallow project, the deeper projects are generally quite benign in terms of turbidity. And then it's up to us to really let the customer know that we have these other capabilities they can they can do while they're there. We're on a project offshore right now inspecting some pipelines and some some infrastructure. And you know, there's a potential for a for a leak in some production fluids in this system if the schedule allows, we'll identify that leak very quickly and show them what's leaking and exactly where. Um, without the customer having that openness with us, we wouldn't look for it or make an effort to look for it. So I think they need to kind of come with a list of all their problems and what can we solve. Yeah. I mean, you guys are offering a lot. I mean, early leak detection or even like you said, vibrations or integrity issues. Finding those early can, I mean, that can be worth it could be worth a lot. I mean, it could be worth lives, you know, let alone financial figures, right? So that that's huge. Yeah, there's environmental impacts as well, of course. Yeah, you know, we've touched on a lot of different things you guys are doing. Do you have just one, you know, maybe survey or inspection that really stands out to you guys that you just really found maybe exciting or interesting for your field? In terms of value of the technology, I think probably the oil and gas market has really shown what the system is capable of. But the favorite projects are the ones that don't pay generally, which are the archaeological. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we, we surveyed a plane, which was, was in an atoll. I was trying to remember the name of the institute. I think it was the Air Sea Heritage Foundation. So a shout out to those guys because they gave us, they covered all the out-of-pocket costs, but it enabled us to collect a plane where there isn't one above surface. Hopefully one of these planes that we've surveyed will come to the surface and be restored. That gives the ability now for people to visually and spatially, you know, down to that two to three millimeter level, walk around that plane and see how it's resting on the seabed. That one, you can actually dive. There is a dive site, but it's so remote. I mean, it's in the middle of the Pacific, so it's not accessible to most people. But by having that data online, people could access that and, and see that plane. And none of those planes made it through World War Two. So that's probably my favorite. The second one was the Roman ruins in Pompeii. Whilst they're not the real ones, they they took them out in the fifties and replaced them with mocks. It still enables people to you know to stand in that area before Mount Vesuvius subsided it and, and enable people to witness that. So generally, the archaeological ones are the, are the most interesting. The most valued, whereas the value proposition is probably the oil and gas market because they're still pushing extremes of putting sixty to seventy ton steel structures on the seabed two thousand meters deep. And with that comes integrity concerns and, you know, the duration of these things need to work. You, you don't buy a car and think this car is going to run for 25 years, day in, day out, and never stop. And that's the expectation some of these structures have to have. Now, you kind of, and that's that's a great point there and something I just kind of hadn't really even thought about through the discussion, which is, I mean, you guys are taking the measurements and capturing that data, but then that's kind of can be turned into you know a lot of the the virtual reality inspections where now an engineer or you know somebody on land in an office somewhere can put on a VR headset and basically stand in that formation or in that down in that to some degree is that is that accurate to say 
Yeah, you can collaborate. We did partner with a company called IQ3 Connect, and we worked on a basic workflow with them, which was really they worked on, to be fair to them, to push our data into their platform. And it could go into other platforms as well. But the cool thing with it is we can survey something. We can be all working remotely like we are today because of COVID-19 and, and collaborate, right, and look at the problem in true virtual space and share considerations and concerns as if we're looking at it in air. And that, that's really powerful from an integrity standpoint and efficiencies as well, that you have that ability to basically replicate what you have. I think the industry buzzword is digital twin. Some people love it. Some people don't love it. I'm staying quiet on the subject. <laughs> we have some customers that love the phrase and some customers that hate the phrase. So I just sit in the middle and take the political high road. But yeah, you have the option to sit and do that and discuss where it would be very difficult to translate that from just a video camera or even just a a chart of paper that says this is really bent and shouldn't be bent. It should be a straight line. Yeah. I didn't know that Digital Twin had some controversy around it. I actually have a guest on, I haven't done the interview yet, but a week from today. So next Friday, I'm interviewing a company and that's their specialty is industrial digital twins for both the offshore and you know pretty much all industrial applications. So I'll have to see if they know about the drama. Yeah. <laughs> You can ask them the question. The, the biggest feedback we get is having a digital twin is great. The disadvantage of generating a digital twin is you need something to say, I have a twin of that. So there's an entire market segment on the creation of digital twins before you can realize a digital twin, right? So gotcha. there's a cost to go collect all that data. And that's really mm -hmm. where we sit is collecting the baseline and then the updating of that. And then somebody else manages the data. So maybe there are synergies if they're listening. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll, I'm going to bring this up on that show for sure. I, I won't throw you under the bus, I promise. I'll tell him he took the high road. <laughs> yeah, the political off to the side. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a very interesting discussion. I, I know I learned learned a lot and got to cover a lot of very interesting things. Is there anything we haven't touched on or anything else that you wanted to kind of get out to the listeners? I think the next evolution of technology and offshore collection for us is really relevant, which is the ability to collect the data offshore while we're not offshore with the technology. We're just getting really close to launching in about a week's time. The press release goes out, depending on, on the airtime for this. So for us, it's the third week in June, where we, we have everything remotely sensed. So that means that the system is controlled and the data, and we do collect higher volumes of data than other methods, less than cameras, but more than acoustics because of the resolution. But to be able to, it's called remote sensing. So to be able to operate the technology remotely is really powerful. There's the less movement of people. So during COVID-19, there's a, an HSE risk reduction. The environmental risk is less. And then importantly for the customers, the cost is less. So the probability, should we back on the high road for digital twin of them collecting that baseline and then managing that by updating the data on an annual basis, as an example? would be more feasible because you've you've taken out the cost of a human factor. And I think that's really where the market has to go. Again, you're not going to get away from, you know, a platform supply vessel delivering drilling supplies to a drilling rig. But if you can have sensors on that vessel and you don't need anybody on that vessel as well, the mobilization and the collection of the data is far more feasible. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure this is something that you guys have been working on for for quite some time. It just it sounds extremely fitting for everything that we've been pushed into because of the you know the covid situation but how long has this been in the works well from the outset we we wanted the technology to have the capable to be 
operated remotely and it was mainly for the resident vehicle consideration where the vehicles constantly live subsea within the oil and gas infrastructure or a nuclear facility without the need to send somebody to, to collect. What COVID did is moved it up the development pipeline path and put some other stuff on hold. So it, it just prioritized the development, but the development was always coming. It was just the focus was on other efficiencies that we were being asked for at the time that were more important to customers. And then priorities changed. So we listened to the customers and developed this instead. Yeah, priorities have changed, haven't they? Whether we wanted them to or not, but sounds like you guys are doing doing well and working through everything and doing some very interesting work that's bringing a lot of stuff a lot, of, a lot of stuff to the surface, <laughs> if you will. So thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it, Neil. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Andy. I was glad to contribute for you today. Yeah. And I missed it in the beginning. Neil, you touched on them early in the show, which, which is always great. But you know, the show is sponsored by Tidewater. Tidewater is they own and operate the largest fleet of offshore support vessels in the industry. They've got over 60 years of experience supporting offshore energy exploration and production activities worldwide. If you're interested in support for your maritime operations, you can learn more about Tidewater through their website at www.tdw.com. They actually made the introduction for you and I, Neil, so I appreciate Jason over there for that. It's been a very good interview. To everybody listening, if you enjoyed the show, Please leave a comment, a like, review, share it. You can leave honest comments. It's the only way we make the show better. So we want to provide what you want to hear. So the more you feedback we can get, the better we can do. And we'll catch you on the next one. Here are the events on deck. Hey, everybody. Alex here with the events on deck. So due to current circumstances, of course, we are not able to have any in-person events. So I have nothing of that nature to update you guys on. But we have been hosting some virtual events. So OGGN is wanting to offer free webinars, live happy hours, etc. during this time. Since these events are not scheduled out as far in advance as in-person events, we would like to keep you guys updated via Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. So be sure to keep checking up on that and we'll keep you guys posted on anything we're offering. It has been free. We want to offer you guys value during this time that we're all at home. So please continue checking in and joining us for these virtual events. We are looking forward to seeing you guys whenever we're able to have in-person events and hope you're staying safe and sound. Tune in next week for another episode of the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasoffshore.com.